Fintech Chatter Podcast, brought to you by Tier 1 People, the leaders in executive search for fintech ventures. Hello and welcome to Fintech Chatter, the show where I connect with fintech leaders for a bit of a chat. I'm your host, Dexter Cousins. And today's guest is the CEO and founder of one of Australia's most exciting fintech, Honey Insurance, a smarter way to protect your home and contents. Richard Joffe is a three times founder, serial entrepreneur, and was recently recognized as CEO Magazine's Entrepreneur of the Year. I chat to Richard on how to build a successful insure tech, the differences between launching a startup in the US and Richard's greatest lessons and insights gained from 18 years as a founder. Strap yourselves in, folks, for a fantastic episode. And remember, if you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it with your network. It really helps me spread the good word about great Aussie fintechs like Honey Insurance. Richard, welcome to your Fintech Chatter debut. Good to meet you, and thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, um, I think it's long overdue, actually. Uh, Some... Big accolades this this last week would suggest that um, I've probably got my timing just right. Um, we're going to talk about Honey Insurance in just a, a, a little moment, but in the intro there, I kind of noted two big kind of um, you know wins for you in this last couple of weeks. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean Honey's been at it for about four years. We launched publicly about two and a half years ago, uh, June of 2021. And we've really hit our stride. You know, we've grown from about 20 to 100 people over the past year. Um, I got uh, Entrepreneur of the Year um, from the CEO magazine last week. And, and I think really excited that we were on the Deloitte to- uh, Fast 50 um, on the tech side of things. So we were number- the sixth fastest growing tech company in Australia um, this year, which is just it's a great testament to the team. And as you know, there's just so much grind that happens behind the scenes. Mm. So it's nice when the 1% of the time you can kind of pop your head up and, and actually just take a breath and smell the roses and, and realize that it's yeah. working. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nice and important, I think, for the team. Yeah. So it's wonderful. Um, f- fintech in Australia, and I, I don't know if this is the same in the U.S., but it's kind of gone like the path of dance music in the 90s where there's all these derivatives of <laughs> dance music. Totally. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was to, to, you know, given that I pride myself on being across all of them and being agnostic to them all. And um, But if there's one area that I think is so tough to crack and everywhere is tough to crack, but yeah. insure tech and insurance, mm. what a, I mean, you know, to be, to be number six and to be an insure tech business is, is a real, you know, kudos to everybody involved. Thanks, Dexter. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a tough space, I think, to get to first base is what I'd say. Yeah. Um, you know, I think once you have some scale and you have the capital and the team and, and product market fit, then it's the barriers to entry are very high mm. is what I would say. Yeah. Before, so yeah. what what is what exactly does Honey do? Like what kind of insurance do you yeah, so we So Honey is a home insurance company. So we're trying to create a, a digital home insurance company, a next generation version of what you'd see out there um, within the incumbency. There's in Australia about five companies that control 85% of home insurance in Australia. To give you a sense, it's mandatory. So you can't even get a home loan without home insurance. So everyone understands it. Everyone knows the feeling of getting the price jacked up 
every single year, um, loyalty taxes, it's pervasive. And so there's a lot of things that are broken in the industry from how pricing works to how distribution works to even just how people are engaging with their customers. No one's really actually trying to reduce risk, for example. Mm. Um, so the idea of Honey is how do we actually reduce risk for people in their lives so they don't actually make a claim? In the first place, and then how do we make everything totally digital, right? From how you sign up in three minutes to how you make a claim in hopefully two days, not 42 days in terms of it getting sorted mm-hmm. out. You know, the aspiration really is to streamline it so the, the insurance policy is actually supportive in your life and helpful yeah. and, um, rather than just something that sits in the background and is difficult to use if that day comes. Yeah. So how, how do you go about actually helping your customers reduce risk? Yeah, so... You know, we have a whole product roadmap at the moment. One of the things that we do, for example, is is that when people sign up, we send them, it's about $300 of free smart home sensors. So the three biggest things that can happen to someone's house that's avoidable would be flood. Yeah. So typically your flexi hoses might bust. There might be a drip, for example, because you didn't clean your gutters uh, on the roof. So it's flooding, it's fire, and it's theft. Um, and of course, what people fear is not necessarily what the data supports. So, you yeah. know, people are very scared of fires, for example, but it turns out you should be much more fearful of flooding, as yeah. an example. Um, electrical fires are, are quite rare. And so those sensors, they're, all three of them do the same thing. If your fire alarm goes off and you're not at home, you get a text and an email, you know, saying, hey, um, you know, your fire alarm's going off right now. You might want to go home or make a call. Uh, you get a, a text message as well if there's a water leak. So typically people would put one underneath their sink or put one near the bathtub, areas like that. And then often they'll put one next to the garage door or your front door. So if the door is left open or it opens when you're not home, you know about it. So it's almost like a very simple DIY home protection kit. Um, and when people sign up to Honey, they don't just get that, but we actually give them a discount if they put it in. So the whole idea is how do we give people technology how do we give them services so that we actually reduce risk? So if you just want to buy a home or landlord policy, it's like, hey, Dexter, you know, if you just want to buy a policy, it's a great policy, easy, great coverage. By the way, if you want to put in the smart home tech, you get a discount. Mm. And then we're going to have other services and technology over time that get rolled out where you keep getting discounts, for example, yeah. or, or, or um, subsidized equipment and services in order to stay safer at home. Yeah. Right. So ultimately, I think the bogey for what the industry should look like is actually having lower home insurance and other insurance products as well over time. The price should actually go down if people are better behaved um, rather than the way it works now, which is that the behavior of that individual person is not included in how the price works, Mm. right? All we know is your house is your house. We don't really take into account if you're a good or a bad actor, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm getting kind of serious 2017 vibes here when I used to be heavily involved with InsureTech Australia and we'd have... uh, major insurers come and present and they talk about this. Yeah. But it all seemed like some dream off in the distant future. Sure. How has the, how is it in actual application worked and what kind of feedback are you getting from customers? I mean, well, we have, you know, tens of thousands of Australians that have, um, you know, sensors now installed throughout their houses. Right. So it's, it's, it's at scale. Yeah. Uh, honey, to answer your question directly, I mean, Honey runs at a 91 NPS score. Um, my understanding is that's never been achieved in the history of the industry, uh, anywhere close to that, in fact. Um, and so, we, you know, the customer testimonials are kind of off the charts. The industry average ranges from 6 to 30, depending mm-hmm. on, uh, on on the year that you, you look at. And so 91 is, I think, a really strong indication at this point that people love the experience, both the purchase experience, the claims, 
the onboarding. Um, you know, we're now going to be launching in, in a couple of weeks a notification. So if there's bad weather in your area or something to be concerned about, you get a text message to give you a heads up ahead of time. Um, we get U.S. satellite footage on, on people's roofs and their outlying areas, and we've built AI to detect if there could be something happening. For example, if a tree is about to fall in your house. So we're building a lot of really interesting tech like that to actually try and proactively keep people safe. Yeah. Um, and so I think the result, people have a very low expectation of insurance in Australia, right? It's been an incumbency. No one's jumping up and down saying, I love my insurance company. It's just not true. Yeah. Um, and so we have an opportunity to really change that mindset from something which is very much a grudge purchase that people don't want to buy to something where people feel they're actually getting value for their money and, and hopefully are actually better mm. off for spending their $2,000 a year, right? Yeah. You know what? You've just... Um kind of backed up a sales pitch that I gave a candidate who's just accepted a role with an insurer um, and he's a technologist. And yeah. my, my pitch was, hey, it sounds boring, but I think insurance is going to be the most innovative place yeah. out of all kind of fintech that's out there over this next decade for the very reasons that you just mentioned around. I think it touches everything, right? Listen, we have a very low baseline um, of expectation because... If you think about what incumbents within the insurance industry are doing, they're, they're largely protecting a back book, which is, makes sense. Yeah. If you've got $1 to $5 billion in premiums, for example, in Australia, you know the question is, how do we manage that? How do we make sure we're getting the most dollars out of those existing customers? They're not thinking about how do we invest into you know, innovation for those customers because they're your customers already, yeah. right? And so there's not really such a tangible return on investment. And a lot of people that are running these incumbencies are much more incentivized to kind of keep their jobs, I would say, than they are to swing for the fences, Yeah, right? So, you know, if you, it's not like someone makes $200,000 and they could make up to $2 million if the company hits it out the park. That's not an economic reality for most people in an incumbency. They make a salary and they may make 10 or 15% more in bonus. And so both the incentive structures and the nature of their business model is such that it, they have innovators dilemma. It doesn't make sense to take significant existential risk and, and invest yeah. in that kind of way. So th they're being rational in the way they behave. I think that we have the benefit with a, a clean slate to be able to say, okay, well, what should the future experience be of a consumer? in our case of home insurance, but the same thing goes for pet and small business and other areas, you know, motor. Um, what should that future experience be? Um, what should the economic relationship be? And because people literally never hear from their insurance company other than if they make a claim, which is 6% of the time, you know, there's an opportunity to actually create a more intimate relationship with customers where we're able to be proactive and try to use data for the better to help them save money. And these are all really interesting spaces, I think, mm -hmm. for us to work on. Um, I think one of the reasons why I love recruiting for fintech so much is its complexity. Yeah. So, you know, the, the kind of Facebook mantra of move fast and break things, you just really can't do that for sure. in an insure tech or yes. a fintech because, you know, you, you're likely going to end up in trouble with regulators. Absolutely. Um the other complexity is the capital management piece. Yes. And we've talked about some really innovative tech that Honey's involved in. Yes. But you've then got this whole other side of the business. Yes. That is kind of, you know, must yes. keep you awake at night as well. How, how do you manage those two almost like paradoxes? Yeah. And so we, when we, when I set up Honey originally, I realized that there were two very different businesses that could exist. And I think when you look at a lot of the, the businesses that haven't worked globally, many of them stepped into underwriting, 
And so instead of focusing on the insure tech piece, which is really about digitization, it's about distribution, it's about novel experiences for customers and data, instead of focusing on that area of the value chain, they stepped into the capital management. And if you think about the skill set that's required there, it's a, that's a game of scale, reinsurance, purchasing in Bermuda. That's about catastrophic risk modeling of cyclones. Like it's a totally different skill yeah. set. And there's no question an incumbent is better at that than an insured tech like us will ever be. And so I've tried to avoid that desperately. And so we have a partnership with RACQ. Uh, they've been wonderful. The CEO of RACQ sits on our board, David. He, uh, They're the largest shareholders of Honey. And so RACQ do the underwriting component uh, and they absorb that risk, which means Honey can focus all of our time on those other components. So we focus all of our time on how to work with Bank of Queensland or with AGL, with all these great partners mm-hmm. on distribution, on digitization for customers, novel experiences, and, and of course, data. And so um, I think it's really important to avoid, to kind of know where is the area that you can add value in the value chain um, and make sure that you don't meander into yeah. in, into diluting your ability to focus on that. Um, but yeah, there's no question a, a startup can never be um, balance sheets competitive against an incumbent. I think that's a foolish battle to try and yeah. fight. I want to talk a little bit about the the honey business and the journey that you've been on. Sure. So you mentioned in the intro, 20 to now over 100 people in the space yeah. of 12 months, not just any 12 months. When you look at the data, you know, the, the funding levels that we're seeing in fintech in Australia back to 2017, 2018 levels, yeah. to see that you've been able to grow the business bring on and create that many jobs in a time where a lot of businesses have been made in redundancies. One is, I think, incredible. But two, that, you know, to do that, I'm assuming you've had to raise capital as well. How how have you gone about that, given the climate that we've been in this last 12, 18 months? Yeah, I I think, you know, the traditional way to raise money is that you knock on a, a venture capitalist door, of which there are limited options in Australia, and you say, this is my widget. You know, do you want to fund it? I think the reality is there's lots of different capital sources. There's venture debt. Yeah. Of course, there's venture capital. There's venture debt. There's family offices. And there's international investors. And then ultimately, there's, there's also customers. I am a huge proponent of always raising money as much as you can from value add, which to me is thinking through what is the biggest failure point for a startup? And then how do you raise money from someone who can solve that problem? So when we started the business, you know, we raised about 15 million or so out the gate in a seed round. That money came from RCQ as the underwriter and from our distribution partners. It came from AGL and it came from Metricon and Mervac and all of these folks that could help us get the product designed and ultimately start to get it sold in the market with that kind of build that muscle. And so I, I think, you know, as a starting point, you have to be very clear about where is the best money hmm. um, to help de-risk a business. And Often people don't like doing that because if the smartest person who's closest to the problem, that customer, doesn't like what you're doing, the truth is you you need to be looking in the mirror and asking, you know, if you're really solving the right yeah. problem, right? So it's it, it can be quite, um, I think it can it can be quite difficult for a lot of folks. But but I think ultimately I've gone to a lot of the customers, and most of the money that we've raised so far has been from we've raised about forty million so far. Mm-hmm. There'll, there'll be a big announcement on another funding round. Uh, in in first quarter next year, and and most of that money has really come from from strategics. Yeah. So, um, I've really focused on customers as the funders of the business and the partners in helping to build the business, as opposed to just getting money, so to speak. Yeah. 
One of the big challenges, you know, it's, it's almost like this cycle that we go through every few years, Richard, here in the fintech ecosystem down under, is this tenuous relationship between incumbents and the startup sure. community. And you kind of, you know, it's it almost, you know, somebody came up with the term frenemies and mm. there's always this tension and sometimes it's like, you know, we're, we're friendly and then other times it's been quite hostile. Um, mm. You know, 2017, 2018, it was pretty hostile. There's been hostility kind of re-emerging, I think, over this past 12 months. How have you then um, been able to forge such productive relationships with your investors and and your customers? You know, I, I can't speak to some of the other um, headbutting. I think that's probably happened. I think my observation as kind of an outsider that's now somewhat in the inside from from outside of Australia. I think, you know, in places like the U.S., I moved from yeah. from from Palo Alto, San Francisco, right. So I think when, when you're in places like the U.S., it's so competitive that the incumbents are highly incentivized to find ways to partner on core value props. Yeah. Whereas when you're in a, a smaller market like this, especially an oligopoly like we have, the incumbents are not incentivized to really experiment, right? So when I originally came to Australia and I met some of the incumbents, they told me flat out, they said, listen, our biggest profit pool is where you're looking to play. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to help you get to market because we're not under threat, essentially. Yeah. And so I think you know, in an environment that's highly competitive, you have less of that headbutting, you have more collaboration because there's a genuine feeling from both startups and incumbents that they're that they're they will always be under threat. They they don't have a monopoly, so to speak, or an oligopoly, right? I think in an environment where everyone's cozy and protected, on, uh, whether it's banks, insurance companies, you know, you name it, right? Supermarkets, it doesn't matter. Um, they're not under as much threat, and so the consequence is that they can be much more isolationist when it comes to actually putting core core profit pools at risk for innovation. So I think that's just one observation. But in terms of how we did it, I went to companies that were interested for their own selfish reasons in improving their core retention. So for example, if you think about an energy company or a, you know, a retailer or a telco or any of these companies, ultimately they don't really care about insurance. What they care about is I sell a house or I sell you know, home internet or I sell energy and gas and, and I want my customer to be really, really happy so they stick around for longer. That's my core metric as a business. Mm -hmm. And if you can give me a 91 NPS core and this amazing experience for my customers through insurance, yes, we'll make a bit of money there, but really what I care about is how do I improve that core retention? The customer through bundling is going to want to stick around for longer. And so I, I spent a lot of time with, with companies who are interested in customer experience not just making a dollar on, a, on an extra value-added service. Um, and if that's the case, they're, they're going to be highly motivated to try and partner. And so I didn't go to the big insurance incumbents and say, help me, help me, right? What I, what I did was I went to all of the distribution partners and I said, you are selling a core product. If we're right, we think that we can really wow a customer. Mm -hmm. We can keep them safer. We can really shake something up and do something special for them. And the results is that if we're using your brand on this experience, then your core product will be stickier, right? And so I think their motivations generally were to do right by their customers and create a stickier experience. And so that trumped um, kind of getting involved in the small oligopoly yeah. and then hoping someone would break rank, which I think is which is always challenging. Um, am, am I right in saying that you were quoted as saying something along the lines as it's easier to 
get a startup off the ground in Australia than it is in the US? I think in some ways it is. Um, you know, I, I think in some ways it is. It depends a lot on the type of startup, obviously. Yeah. I think Australia is much easier to replicate than it is to innovate, at least in the early stages of a business. You know, in, in the U.S., if you think about Australia, you kind of e you either have to think small or you have to think global on day one, yeah. right? Like that's as a general concept. And, and I think in, in America, you can think big and domestically on day one yeah. just because of the size of the market. And so you're very incentivized and the investors are very incentivized that to tell you to do things that are super innovative and novel because the stakes are so high. You know, in Australia, it does lend itself better to, to replicating, so to taking what's working already in other countries and, and you know, localizing that. So I think the playbook is, is different. Um, but I do think in Australia, it's far less competitive. Um, I think there's not that many entrepreneurs who have done it several times. Yeah. And, um, and there are a lot of great... Um, early adopters and partners who want to innovate on the company side. Yeah. You know, I've been really heartwarmed, I think, at how many Australian companies have wanted to step up with Honey and work with us um, to innovate. And, and, and there is kind of an open field, I think, for yeah. that, right? Now, this isn't your first rodeo. Um, <laughs> and you've kind of made my transition really easy here to the next part of the discussion, which is... Um, the, the podcast over the last four years has become almost kind of an archive where the next generation of founders have listened to it and have been inspired, heard ideas, alternative ways of raising capital, have gone about growth, of getting product mm. market fit. And it's fantastic that I've been able to share knowledge of experienced people like yourself to a, to a broad audience. Um, Given that this is now your third rodeo, what would you say was the kind of biggest thing that you'd taken from the previous experiences? You went right next time. I'm not doing this. <laughs> what was that? What was that? Is it one thing or the? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's a single silver silver bullet. I think clearly there's. Um, at least for me, I've changed the way that I think about building. You know, my first company was um, was Park Assist, which is all those green and red lights that shows you where to park your car, um, oh, yeah. which is an automation play uh, based out of New York. We went about 20 countries or so. The second one was U.S. only, and it was an automation play uh, in the recruitment space. So the idea was to automate recruiting departments uh, and seek and, and other customers and partners invested. Um, and this one, of course, is, is an automation play in, in insurance. And I think what I've learned on each of those steps, you know, at Park Assist, I think one of the big things I learned was alignment. Um, it's okay if you want to have a small, tightly controlled company that grows relatively slowly. And it's also okay if you want to shoot for the stars and build a multi-billion dollar business. But if you're not clear on day one with what you want and you end up hiring people or having co-founders or having investors or customers who want different things, mm -hmm. then it becomes really spaghetti pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, And it was incredibly challenging in that business because we just had people that wanted different things. Yeah. None of those things are wrong, by the way. Um, but you, you, every single decision becomes extremely complex and almost impossible to make if one investor wants to get on a three years and the other wants eight years. And, you know, if you have a co-founder who wants to make three X and a different one who wants to make 30 X, those are different things. And if you have, you know, employees who want to do a two year run versus 10 years and be, and, and be very safe and, and comfortable, those are totally, so there's nothing wrong with any of them, but I think alignment is critical. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've, I've become like, you know, stern about alignment, right? Like this is what, this is the North star. We're going to be one in 10 houses in Australia by 2028. This is the strategy. 
this is what the multiple is on exit. This is how we think about incentives, equity, like it's crystal clear. So I, I think I made a lot of mistakes in my first company around alignment. Um, you know, in the second company, I think I, I learned the importance of, of taking customer money as opposed to traditional venture money, uh, at least in the early stages of the business around product market fit. I think at all costs, you want to get customers to have skin in the game. Now, that could be that you offer Dexter my new service that costs, you know, a million dollars for a 10-year license, and I give it to you at half price in exchange for you giving me some feedback once a quarter. It, it, whatever, whether it's a deposit, a discount, an investment, sitting on the board, just at all costs, get them to have skin in the game because you just you need that feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, honest feedback is just invaluable. And um, everyone wants to be polite, so they're going to tell you it's a lovely idea, yeah. but then you go build it and they don't buy it. Yeah. Or they buy it and they don't tell you why it's wrong. And and so there's nothing that's more powerful than feedback. And so I think alignment is critical. I think taking money in the pre-product market fit stages from customers that are close to the problem I think is critical. And then the other thing I think is overpaying for top performers. Um, you know, I think that there's a tendency for people to always just look at the middle of the bell curve, right? Yeah. And say, well, the difference between good and great is $20,000, so let's just pay that. The reality is someone who's exceptional is really worth three, five, ten times someone who's average. Yeah. And we don't think about it like that. You know, we, we always think, well, that's not equitable. That's not fair. And, and I think that that's actually just not true. And so I've become, you know, and I don't get to make all my own decisions running the business. I have investors, but I'm, I'm a very big fan of, like, overpaying equity, for example, like disproportionately overpaying equity um, for top performers, because if we get great value, they should they should be a part of that, and they should disproportionately be a part mm-hmm. of that. You know, nothing would make me happier than there being dozens of million, yeah. millionaires out of honey in the next three or four years, and and uh, and they deserve it, by the way. So, I wanted to talk to you about the, I guess you know the culture that you're building here, and really impressive office space. Even more impressive that it's full. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, True. Uh, I, well, what what if what is the secret sauce to getting everybody here under the same roof and yeah, kind of building building together versus them kind of you know all in the bedrooms everywhere? I think I'm very or clear. from Bondi work, working from home. True, <laughs> true. Well, look, we, we obviously, as you said, we have a great space. People are very well compensated on equity. Um, you know, there's only so much you can do on cash to compete with incumbents, but, but every single person in this company has equity and, and in some cases meaningful, meaningful equity. Um, and so people really feel like they're in it. Um, so I think having a clear North Star, having everyone have skin in the game matters. I think as well being super transparent matters. You know, one of the things that is most important to me is trying to make Honey the first stop on many people's journeys where they ultimately will become entrepreneurs or join other early stage companies. Um, you know, I will or won't build again. I don't. I don't know yet. I would love to if I have the energy to stay on the field, as they say, and take the hits. But um, there's the PayPal mafia and the eBay yeah. mafia and the Google mafia, and I think that it's an incredible thing to create a company where people go off for the next fifteen or twenty years, and they can use the money they've made here and the skills they've made and what they've learned to have a honey mafia, so to yeah. speak. And they build together and work together, and that to me would be one of you know that would really be something I would um, you know be an extraordinary thing to reflect on, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I try to be as transparent as I possibly can with the team. We do fireside chats. You know, I try to do one-on-ones as much as I humanly can. 
we have almost an open book policy essentially on everything. And we do that. I do that because I want people to actually understand what's inside the box and how it works um, so that they can go off and do it again. Yeah. Right. They're not just in their own silo. So part of that is important. So they understand how their day job contributes to the broader mm. picture. But I think part of it is just skill set. You learn by osmosis and there's not really a replacement yeah. for somebody telling you why they're nervous about this. or this may not work or why we screwed up about something. Yeah. And, and so I think for me, a lot of it has to do with how do we equip people with the skills and the knowledge. So if they want to go build again or join another early stage startup, they're empowered to do that. You know, yeah. I want people to leave in two or three years. Really, I do. Um, because I think, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. And, yeah. and, and I think the more we can skill people up and they go off and do other things in the Australian ecosystem, I think we all win in the end. You mm. know? I've been quite bored by the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of conflict between work from home versus being in the office. Sure. And it's been, you know, really quite quite exhausting actually um, to have so much data you know, that comes not only from quantifiable data, sure. but qualitative data of sitting opposite people like yourself and, you know, privately sharing me all the things that are going on in the business and how the business is performing or not performing. And I think ultimately what what's really kind of stood out to me, Rich, is I've had top performers say, I don't want to work in a place where it's remote mm -hmm. and remote first because I don't feel that I'm learning. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm being challenged. Yes. I don't feel like that, that thing that you said about osmosis. Yes. And I've often you know, equated um, startup life to, to you know, being synonymous with elite sports mm. is it takes the same mm -hmm. kind of person, yeah. discipline, resilience, you know, all of those things, structured, clear vision, clear goals, being able to visualize you know, the outcomes and make them the sacrifices. And I think that a lot of the narratives that we put out there on social media around startup life kind of glamorizes it mm. rather than presents it for what it actually is. Sure. How have you then been able to attract talent to the, the business if you're so transparent and everybody's in the office? Surely, you know, I, I know that, you know, people say money's not important and equity, you know, it's a, it's a nice kind of character dangle, but for the Best performers, it's not my experiences. That's not the thing that's going to get them across the line. What have you found to be the, the kind of secret like, you know, sources to, to getting people, you know, top performers into the business? So first I'll, I'll say, I think first thing, every, everything yeah. that you've, you're talking about is kind yeah. of contradictory, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, it's yeah. contradictory to what pretty much everybody's saying out there that talent and the top and top talent wants. Um, well, look, I think a couple of things, um, I think, firstly, I think startups in, in a way are kind of like marriage, right? There are norms to what works, yeah. but there are also plenty of outliers and, you know, that, that can work. So I think there there isn't a single one size fits all, yeah. but of course there's a bell curve and 85 to 90% of the bell curve should fit into something that looks kind of similar, okay? So, so I'll start by saying there are people that have built completely remote companies that have worked. I've never seen it, but it does exist, yeah. you know? So a couple of thoughts. Firstly, I think that money does matter to a lot of people more yeah. than more than is socially acceptable to talk about. Yeah. 
we feel we need to talk about purpose all day long. The reality is most people have kids, most people have a mortgage, and I think it's actually intellectually dishonest to say, it's only about you know your passion and purpose. I don't I don't think we live in some hedonistic. So I've, got, I've got some evidence you know? to support that, right? So and I, yeah. I actually I, I believe in transparency as well. And part of my process sure. is you know we talk about salary up front before I even meet with the client, yes. and the response to the question is every time, oh, money's not the motivator. And when I share that, actually, I spend about ten hours of a process just negotiating your salary. So yeah. it must clearly be important. Yeah, um, I, listen, people, are, people are really reluctant to talk about it. I think that we've been socialized into this not being a topic, yeah. which I think is a disservice to people, and, and I think it's a little dishonest. Clearly, there's three or four levers that matter, and yeah. you know, for everyone, there's a different component to that. Some people might inherit a lot of wealth. I mean, obviously, everyone's different. So I'm not. So let, let's not try to over um, structure everyone's response. But I think you've got. The financial package, you've got the quality of work that you do every day, you've got the people you work with, the direct people and your direct manager being more important than the culture of the company. So there's a higher correlation, as you might know, between um, whether people stay in a business um, based on their cultural fit with the team than a company. Yeah. Right. And so, for example, engineering teams across companies have a much more similar culture than engineering and sales teams within that same company. As an example, okay, um, and then you know clearly the skill set and learning and da, 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 right. So my experience has been, firstly, I think it's very important for people to understand exactly what does the equity mean. So if we sell the company for three hundred million dollars or one billion dollars or three billion dollars, what does this mean? You get fifty thousand, two fifty, and five hundred. And people then understand. And yeah. by the way, in order to get there. This is what the revenue and, and EBITDA needs to look like of the company, which means this many customers in year two, four, and six. And then yeah. if you can outline that articulately, then people get that. When I was in San Francisco, I learned that trick from a company called Palantir, um, which is the biggest, I think, biggest data science company in the world. You know, and they, I thought the first time I saw an offer letter from Palantir, one of my engineers brought it to us. And, you know, I kind of laughed. I was like, oh, how can you put 20 billion and 100 billion on paper, this is obnoxious, you know? And, and then I realized that actually it wasn't a ludicrous idea, meaning if you tell somebody you're getting $10,000 of shares or 500 shares, no one knows what that means. Yeah. But if you're able to actually articulate and say, listen, this is what it means at this value, this value, and this value, of yeah. course you can't predict the future, no one has a crystal ball, but then people understand as the company's tracking what it means for them and their family. Yeah. And I, so I think, firstly, I think it's underrated making sure that you're very clear with people about what the equity is likely to mean in different cases and then laying that out. I think most, nearly all startups I've seen do a very poor job of that. Mm. And the consequence is that you give away equity either to people who don't value it um, or you aren't giving the right amount to people. Yeah. Okay, so that's the first point. Um, the second, I think, is is that you know if you want to hire exceptional people, our job is to set the North Star and then support them getting on with it. You know, these are not children. These people are incredible, gifted professionals. And... It's, I think, again, um, very demoralizing to go micromanage people and tell them how to do their jobs and or resource constrain them. Like either you want to play that game or you don't. Yeah. And so I think it's important to be clear about what the outcome financially is for people because that is important more than people claim and should be, by the way. Uh, the second is I think it's very important not to micromanage and just be clear on what leadership and the strategy is, and then give them all the support back into the hill getting there. And then the final thing I think is um, I've become progressively less tolerant of, you know, underperformers or call it B players, um, average performers, uh, as I've gotten on in my career. And I've realized as I've gotten on in my career, what happens when you allow people to stick around that are not high performers 
is it's actually, it's irritating to the high performance and they yeah. leave, right? So it's not so much that the average people are destructive to the business. Let's, let's put aside people for a minute that are actively destructive and, and poor performers. But the average performers, the, the people that are great working crazy hours that are super gifted look around, they're like, hold on a minute kind of this, yeah. I'm in the same cohort as this person. I'm not really learning from them. I'm carrying their weight. They become resentful and they pull the pin. And so mm. I think I think what's important is the financial component and being very clear about what it means practically. I think that, that that rarely happens. I think it's very important that you play a supporting role with the North Star and then kind of get out people's way. And I think over management, micromanagement, I think happens a lot in startup world because you were the only person there on day one and it's hard to transition intellectually to letting go. And it's your baby. And then I think the third one is you have to be fairly ruthless about ensuring that you remain a high performing culture. You can be supportive and coach people, but I think it's very easy over time to not have hard conversations. Yeah. And the consequence is that your best performers end up shopping around. Yeah. And that is, you know, I think that's very dangerous. Yeah. We're kind of, we're in a period where, you know, terms like vulnerable leadership, um, you know, creating psychological safety, terms that are being thrown around in startup land where I kind of really struggle to understand how the, they're actually synonymous with the environment that people are getting into. And it I seems think it's to me, absolute nonsense. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's absolute nonsense. And I think um, then you need to go to a big company where there's a culture department and, you know, and so like startups are a blood sport. Yeah. They're a complete blood sport. I'm going to give you like an ax and a bat and it's three o'clock in the morning and you're outnumbered hundred to one. And by the way, you have $2 in your pocket and no food. And I expect to see you on the other side in one year. Good luck. Yeah. It's like, well, I mean, so I'm not suggesting for a second that, you know, you shouldn't be an upstanding person and, and do your best to help it. Of course. But I think this, this idea that, you know, it's nine to five and work from home any day you want and, you know what, if, if you're not performing, let's take the next six months and think through it. You'll just die. Yeah. Like you have to be, I mean, only one in seven companies that are venture funded series A return positive money, meaning six out of seven on neutral will die. That's yeah. from, that's from series A funding. Yeah. Forget about seed, forget about pre-seed. So this is a very hard sport, right? And if you've done it before successfully, it's the one in three. Yeah. Meaning there's no, you're into series B and C, right? You, the odds are statistically against you, even though everyone, everyone walks down the aisle, think they're going to make it, you know what I'm saying? And half of the world gets divorced. Right. So, yeah. you know, and it's much worse in startup land. And so, you know, it's not that I'm not empathetic to that. I just think there's an age and stage of a company yeah. where you can start to have those sort of luxuries for lack of a better term. And if you want to join an early stage company, you're going to be working for less money, much longer hours. The benefit is, is that you learn enormously. Yeah. You have equity upside. You're working with high performers and interesting problems, but you can't have your cake and eat it too, yeah. right? Nothing great gets done nine to five while chilling on the beach. It's just not true. And so if you want to create, if you want to build, whether that's wealth, incredible products, help to move an industry forward with an interesting problem, then you're you're kidding yourself if you think you can go to the Olympics and, and train two hours a week. It's yeah. just not true. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, how, in terms of the, I guess, you know, the group that you've got together, is it mainly tech people? You got sales product? How's the how's the business structured? Yeah, so we the business is about 50-50. About half the company are uh, in the contact center. So that's anything from sales to claims to learning and development. Um, and and then the other half of the company, which is about 50 people or so, 
or almost entire, well, not mo- are mostly technology, so engineering, design, products. Uh, there's a few kind of talking heads like me, but um, but for the most part, it's so we really have two companies. We had to build a technology company, which is the world that I've largely come from for the last two decades, and we've had to build an insurance company. And you know, one of the things that's there's been several things that have been quite hard about building Honey, but I think one of them has been that we've really had to build two companies. Yeah. And those two companies actually have very different DNA. Yeah. So finding people, like we're incredibly fortunate to have like Galia Durbach and Angelo Azar and Owen Trahey and these incredible people from the world of insurance who wanted to shake up things yeah. in a way that's different. It's very hard to find people that have spent time within the incumbency, but have said, you know what? We can do better if we start at the blank sheet of paper. How exciting would that be? Let me let go of what I've been building and protecting, in a sense, for decades and, and help to build what the future should be. Um, and so we've had to find people from incumbencies who want to build the future, along with these kind of hmm. break, move fast and break things, yeah. technologists. And you couldn't think of two more different personality types, right? Yeah. Like an insurance person, by definition, they spend their whole life calculating the probability that Dexter is going to trip on this camera fall down the stairs and then hit the umbrella, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, versus the technology people who are thinking, okay, three, four, two back, three, four, two back, just move, move, move. And so getting those people to bind together and build together, um, you know, has been amazing, yeah. but it's, it's been obviously challenging so, to build that type of team. Actually really, you know, your kind of um, success rate in doing that is extraordinarily high. So the data that I've collected over the last seven, eight years yeah. shows that, yeah, particularly for an early stage business like Honey, nine out of ten execs or leaders who move out from an incumbent into this environment yes. leave within the first six months. Yeah, I I believe that. I believe that. I, I think one of the benefits of having you know this having done it several times is that you you know the right questions to ask. Um, there were several people that did join on day one that didn't make it. Um, there were several people that said they would join that just in the end didn't quit their jobs with yeah. <laughs> two of them. So, uh, you know, I think what you see as the veneer is different to the reality, yeah. right? If there were six people joining on day one, only three really joined as an example, right? Mm. Uh, on the exact team. So, so firstly, it wasn't so simple. Um, I would say that, that once you've done it for a while, you can just be more honest with people. You're like, yeah. look, this is what you're signing up for. This is what's amazing about this yeah. ride. And this is what's going to be really tough about this ride, you know? And, and, and I think the more experience you, you you have, the more you're able to ask the yeah. right questions and be honest with people. It's, and so people kind of self-select in yeah. or self-select out, which well, is the most Self-selection is what I keep saying to my clients yeah. is the most powerful recruitment tool that totally. I know of. Yes. And, and it's tough, right? Because you want to sell people and you're desperate to get this amazing person to join and, and to build with you. The reality is if it's not if it's not actually the right thing for that person, yeah. then you're doing them and you a disservice. And so I spend a lot of times you know, early when I'm, when I'm building companies to try and understand on the founding team, what's actually right for that person. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause if someone's got three young kids at home and their partner doesn't work and, you know, and, and they've really been at a big company the whole time and maybe this isn't the right thing for yeah. them. Maybe it is in 10 years, but maybe it's not the right exactly. thing today. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think it's very important not to just sell, sell, sell. Yeah. Uh, I think it's very important to rather just try to figure out what the truth is. Yeah. You know, what's the truth for this customer? What is the truth for this investor? What's the truth for this potential founding team member, right? Like mm-hmm. what is actually the right answer for them? Yeah. Should they be an early adopter? Should they put in money? Like what, you know, and I think the, the, the more you're just searching for whatever the truth is, 
with these people without being attached to just selling, 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 which is, of course, the default for all of us as yeah. founders. I think the more likely that you actually get the people on that stick and go, this is exactly what I wanted. It's the right thing for me. Mm. Of course, I want to be an early adopter customer. Of course, I wanted to fund you right now. I knew what you were thinking about. Or, of course, I, I knew I'm taking a 50% pay cut, but I get I can create significant wealth. My family's on board for this. This is exactly what I wanted, mm. right? And, and um, I've made a lot of mistakes in the past overselling, yeah. essentially. Such a powerful yeah. distinction that you make, Rich. Cause, um, you know, it, I've, I've got a you know, something that I'll say to clients is that hiring the right person at the wrong time is still the wrong hire. Hundred percent. And uh, we often see that you know, you've identified an amazing person, but yes. you know, there's so many different phases of growth that you've got to go through. Absolutely. That require very different people with different skills, different attitudes. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just yeah. as you say, it's just so difficult for founders who are so attached to the business and the outcome yeah. and the mission. Yeah. And they want everybody, like a kid, you want everybody to love it and think it's beautiful, right? Sure. And to kind of stop and, you know, just accept that moment of truth, right? Which this is not the right the right outcome. It has such a, you know, can have such a positive impact on the business. Yeah, it's hard because I think, I think that the right mindset is to hold two ideas in your brain at the same time, which is very challenging, right? The one is, I'm likely to die. Right? No matter how good you think you are, no matter how good your idea is, no matter how much feedback people have given you, you are statistically likely not to make it by an order of magnitude. And then you also have to hold in the head the fact that with your pom-poms, you know, like we're going to make it, we're going to get there 100% unwavering because every single investor you meet is a pessimist, right? So if you ain't an optimist, you're dead. Yeah. And so you have to kind of hold these two very challenging things in your brain at the same time, which is, oh my God, I'm not going to make it statistically. I need a backup for every single person on the team early on. I need to make sure there's, you know, 100 investor meetings, not 10. We need to make sure that if we're late by three months, we have enough cash. You're constantly thinking on the one side, how do I not die? How do I not die? How do I not die? Back up, back up. And the other, you're like, of course we're going to make it. Of yeah. course we're going to make it. And and it's it's very hard, I think, for anyone to hold those two ideas in yeah. your head, but you have to if you yeah. want to make it, I think. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody this morning about this, and we got on the subject of ego, and I was like, look, ego is essential to be a founder. Yeah. But my observation has been, I think the most successful founders have known the moments to drop the ego and not let the ego get in the way of making the right decision or the, the right reaction or response. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, we're coming to a wrap up, but before we do, um, we're at the close of an, another year. can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> what, what can we expect? It's obviously been a massive year for, for Honey. Yeah. Um, what can we expect in 2024? Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for the year ahead. Uh, we, we're ramping up, so uh, the business will, will be hiring a lot of people. We'll be making a, a very big announcement in the first quarter, uh, which I think will be one of um, the biggest funding rounds, uh, certainly in fintech and insurtech in Australia um, ever. Uh, and we have, I think, two of the top 10 brands in the country uh, will be launching with Honey as well. So we'll be announcing that in the next three or four months as well. So we've got some amazing partners. We've got some amazing tech and services that our product and engineering team is working on to really wow customers, mm. which I'm, I'm super excited and proud of. Um, and then we've got amazing investors joining yeah. the group as well. So we have we have a lot going on, and, and certainly there's no there's no slowing down in sight, yeah. which is the way I'd like it to be. Awesome. Yeah. We get amazing talent listening to this show. Um, I'm sure some of them are listening now and thinking, wow, sounds like a great place to work. Somebody's interested in potential career at Honey, where's the best place for them to, honey, go to find out more? We're, we're on LinkedIn, of course, but honeyinsurance.com. 
www.honeyinsurance.com is is where all of the job ads are put up, uh, and then our LinkedIn is pretty is pretty um, uh, well trodden as well. You'll see a lot of updates and job openings there as well. Well, Rich, it's been fantastic to find out more about Honey. I'm really excited for you for next thanks, year as thanks, well. Sir. It's amazing. <laughs> thanks for sharing all your your wisdom and insights as well, and you know, good luck to you and the the rest of the Honey crew. Thank you, and thanks for having me. You're welcome. As always, folks, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. If you're new to the show, make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast player. And if you're feeling generous, please leave us a review. It really helps me book fantastic guests like Rich. If you're coming back, thanks so much for your support. You've got no idea how much it means to me. And until the next episode, keep well. Fintech Chatter is produced by Tier 1 People leaders in fintech executive search. We'll find world-class leadership talent to build world-class fintech ventures. And you can find us at tier1people.com.